Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're very welcome to this morning's Signpost webinar. My name is Pat Murphy, Head of Environment Knowledge Transfer with, with Chagas. This morning, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Melinda Lyons from the uh, Technical University of Dublin. Melinda, you're very welcome. Thank you. Uh, Melinda is part of the Environment and Planning Department, and your background is, is as a, a botanist, and I think you're in charge of the environmental management course that, that you run in, in TU Dublin. That's right. I chair the Environmental Management Programme in TU Dublin, yeah. Very good. Uh, and you're going to talk to us this morning about ecologically significant habitats in, in, in farmland. And this is an area in which you've been involved, I think, for quite a while. It's Yeah, I mean, botanical field work is something that I'm very interested in. I've spent a good bit of time out in the field collecting data and looking at different habitats. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I think is very important, especially at the moment. And yeah, and I suppose important that we recognise and appreciate the habitats that are out there and, and manage them for best effect. Well, I'm also delighted to be joined by uh, Catherine Keena, who will be helping with questions uh, later on. Catherine, you're very welcome. Morning, all. OK, uh, well, Melinda, then without much further ado, we might get you to, to begin your, your presentation. Great. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, so what I want to talk about this morning is ecologically significant habitats on farmland and particularly in the context of addressing the biodiversity crisis. So to address biodiversity loss, we need to understand the significance of our native flora, fauna and habitats, and we need to conserve them. That's the main point, I suppose, that I want to get across in this morning's presentation. So we need to be able to recognise what are the ecologically significant habitats and um, to ensure that they're not going to be lost or damaged. And that really is the priority um, in terms of addressing biodiversity loss and dealing with the biodiversity crisis. OK, so just by way of introduction, so my key message then is the high value of naturally occurring habitats. I hope that's what's going to come across uh, through the presentation. And what I'm really talking about is the authentic natural or semi-natural habitats, which are formed in response to the conditions in a particular place. Now, sometimes we talk about natural habitats or we might talk about semi-natural. Um, I've probably used the, the terms interchangeably. Semi-natural is just a recognition of the fact that every habitat is influenced to a greater or lesser extent at this stage by human activity. So nothing is really truly natural. But at the same time, I'm talking about the sort of things that are most natural, most close to their sort of natural state and most important in terms of natural habitats. So whichever term I use, I, I mean really good, high quality habitats. So we're talking about naturally occurring habitats with their indigenous flora and fauna, with their native flora and fauna, the flora and fauna that are naturally occurring in that area. They've made it there by their own, um, under their own steam. Um, they're not things that we have deliberately created. And I think a very important part of understanding that is to see it in terms of the historical continuity of the site. So there have been slow pro processes happening over very long periods of time, and they result in very complex habitats. So these are not something that just happen sort of over, you know, very quickly or that we can somehow recreate. These are things that form slowly over a long period of time through the interaction of species with their environment. 
Um, the biodiversity crisis, I suppose, you know, it's widely acknowledged at this stage. But I think what we really need to be careful about is to think carefully about what is required to approach. Um, how, how do we approach the crisis? How do we address it? So the bad news, of course, as we all know, is that we've already caused a great deal of damage to the natural environment and to, to natural habitats. But the good news, and I think this is something that's really important to stress, the good news is we have not lost all biodiversity and it is not a hopeless case. Um, and therefore, the priority at this stage is really to recognise what is of value and ensure that there is no further damage to ecologically significant habitats. So to recognise what we have and to hold on to that is the key point in addressing the biodiversity crisis. Um, I'm going to talk about the significance of plants. That's the main sort of focus of my talk, partly because my background is in biodiversity, in, in botany rather. Um, but also because, you know, the, the plants form the basic structure of habitats. They're the most visible component of a habitat. When we look at the landscape, the thing that we see first is the plants. So they tell us about the habitat. And by looking carefully at what plants are there, they give us um, some sort of indication about the quality of the habitat. Of course, fauna depends on flora, so the animals all depend on, on, on the plants for food or for shelter or whatever it is. But I really want to stress that the plants are important in their own right. They're not just there about what they can do for us or what they can do for animal species or whatever. They're important in their own right as part of our natural heritage, as part of the natural world, as part of the, the way things are naturally distributed um, within, within the landscape. And I'm going to talk not just about what we might think of as the most sort of um, conspicuous or colourful plants, but I'm going to also talk about some of the smaller inconspicuous things, things like mosses and liverwort. So we'll see photos of those as we go along. OK, and then um, so just in this presentation, uh, Sorry, I just can see my own screen. Um, what I want to do is really to focus on uh, farms in areas that are not designated for nature conservation. I know a lot of the sort of the best areas, a lot of the prime areas for conservation, of course, are in designated areas. So they're in SACs or SPAs. They're in areas that are legally designated for the purposes of nature conservation. But the reality is that an awful lot of very, very important habitats are actually not within those designated areas. So that's what I want to focus on. Some of my photos are from designated areas, but the points that I want to make are especially relevant to farms that are not in designated areas. Um, because there are small features of ecological significance all over the countryside and farmers are the custodians of those. They're on, they're on land that is farmed. Um, so that's what's, what I think is really important to get to get across. So I'm going to talk about natural habitats of high ecological value. First of all, why are they important? Secondly, what are, why are some species of higher priority for conservation than others? I'm then going to give examples of wetland habitats and of their ecological, the things that are of ecological significance. So just to explain um, particular points that I want to make, I'm using wetlands as an example. I don't want to give the impression that wetlands are far, far more important than other habitat types, because of course, you know, if there's small areas of woodland on a farm or if there's scrub or hedgerows, grasslands, heathland and so on, all of these things are very, very important. Um, I'm just using wetlands as an example for today's talk. And it is an area that I've studied probably more than anything else. So it's, you know, it's something that, um, that I, I hope I can use by way of illustrating the points that I want to make. I'll say a little bit then about changes in the Irish landscape and I'll mention the BSBI Plant Atlas 2020 um, and what it tells us about habitats and species in decline. And then lastly, just to finish up with some a few pointers about, you know, what what what, what sort of recommendations should we be thinking about in terms of these ecologically significant habitats?
Okay, so the importance of natural habitats, and I'm seeing these as the irreplaceable support systems of indigenous flora and fauna. So these are things that are very important features in the landscape. Okay, so natural habitats, the natural or semi-natural habitats are the reservoirs and life support systems of the indigenous flora and fauna, as well as fungi and as well as other microorganisms. So when we look at a natural habitat, this is a little lake in County Donegal. It's not designated for nature conservation, but it contains a whole lot of rare plants, plants that are very interesting and um, important for nature conservation. And why are they there? Well, they're there because the particular set of conditions in that particular place suit those species. These are species that depend on certain levels of pH, certain um, uh, the nutrient status of the water is important, the local geology is important. So all of these contributing factors will determine, they'll influence the types of plant communities, what species can survive and what species can't. So it's a particular habitat in a particular place with a very clearly defined set of um, the, you know, sort of the, the environmental variables, the underlying factors are very clearly defined and the plants that are there are there as a response to those factories. So now I'm going to just uh, bear with me for for a minute while I just go go through this this slide. And apologies for the um, the exotic animals, but I think they make a point. I hope they'll make a point anyway. So if we look at this graph, temperature is on uh, running across the horizontal axis here, and precipitation is on the vertical axis. And if we take something like the black bear. Uh, the black bear is not very choosy about where it lives. It has a very wide tolerance for temperature. It has a wide tolerance for precipitation. So it's able to occupy a large range of niches. If we take something like the panda, for example, it is a much more specialized set of requirements. It has a narrower band of temperature, a narrower band of precipitation within which all its needs are going to be met where it can find its food source and whatever. So it is much more specialized in what it requires. So the panda is an example of a specialist where Whereas the black bear is an example of a generalist. Now, generalists are very common. We don't need to worry about them. They're well able to look after themselves. They're not under threat and we don't need to make any special efforts to conserve them. But the thing about the panda or specialists like the panda is these are um, species which depend on very specialised environmental conditions. So there's a narrow set of conditions where they want to live. And if those conditions are not right, they're not going to be able to survive. Um, and to get those very specialised conditions, to get the correct combination of specialised conditions in a particular place, that's not going to happen very often. There's only going to be certain places where those conditions are all going to be right. Therefore, the habitat type is rare and therefore the species themselves are rare. Um, and that's why these are the species that we have to pay particular attention to. These are the species who can't survive. Um, you know, if they're if the particular set of ecological conditions they depend on, if that is lost, those species cannot survive. And that's why these are the particular species that are of greatest concern for nature conservation. So remember the panda and the bear, they're going to pop up again later on. OK, so when we talk about the crisis for biodiversity, what we're actually talking about is the is the loss of the authentic in situ indigenous habitats, which support specialised flora and fauna, including rare species. If we lose those habitats, we're going to lose species. It might be a local loss, but it might be of significance at regional, national or even international level. We don't only lost, lose the species, we lose the whole setup of the habitat and all the information that is contained in that habitat. So there's information contained about 
about the ecology. How do the different components of the habitat interact with each other? These are things that we can study scientifically and gain a better understanding of how the how the world works, how the landscape works, how it functions. We can learn about biogeography. Why are certain things in certain places and not in other places? There's obviously a huge genetic component. Those are the locally adapted species to that particular place. And we can learn things about the past, whether it's to do with the movement of species under, under natural circumstances or to do with the interaction of human beings with the environment. So our natural habitats contain all of those things. If we lose the habitat, that's what we're losing. Those things cannot be replaced. There's no way that we can put back those kinds of things. Um, when we talk about biodiversity loss, we often hear a lot of a lot to do with habitat creation. And I suppose really what I, what I want to sort of point out is, you know, that this it, it's, a, it's a very, very different thing to the kind of habitats that I'm talking about. Often it revolves around providing uh, food or, protect, or, you know, pollen or whatever it happens to be, some sort of resources for animals, whether they're pollinators or for birds. It usually overlooks the whole issue of plants. So remember the, the relevance of plants, they are of their own intrinsic value. They're an important part of the landscape in their own right. So it's not just about the animals. Uh, habitat creation or our efforts to recreate things, they usually favour common species that are not threatened. They don't address the needs of the rare species because they are very specialised and they're, you know, they're much more complex than these sort of um, what are usually fairly sort of superficial um, interventions can actually address. And they often fail to recognise that the that there are remaining habitats that are authentic and that are of high ecological value. And the danger is that by trying to create something, we can actually lose the things that we still have. We don't recognise them. So there have been instances where it's been very close to something that was genuine and of value actually being replaced by something that was artificial. Um, in the effort to do something for biodiversity. So it's crucial that we understand the value of these habitats. And one of the big things, of course, that's coming down the line is um, an increase in tree planting. And, um, you know, if we don't recognise the habitats that are of value, we could lose something that is really significant uh, for planting trees, which at the end of the day is not is not the naturally occurring habitat. It's not the sort of the complex, authentic habitat that we're talking about here, which is of so much more value. What I'm going to do is just use wetlands um, as an example. So I'm going to just specifically talk about wetlands to give you some examples of the kinds of things that I think are important. So here we have just some examples of, of different wetland habitats. So we have calcareous marshes or fens, um, something much smaller, like maybe a, a spring feeding into a small stream. Here's our lake um, that we've looked at already. This is an old drainage channel and it's got wetland vegetation. It's got interesting species. There's a sort of a flushing effect of water flowing through the drain. And this is a more naturally occurring flush where you can just see the wetland vegetation forming in just little channels where the water is emerging and just trickling down the hillside. So these are the types of habitats that are quite um, important in terms of what we're, what we're looking at today. Now, you might think that those will be in legally designated sites. Well, this one on the left is this is Pollardstown Fen, so a huge area, very important habitat. But these other ones are not. This one is in Connemara. This little flush is in Connemara. Again, lovely site. But these are also equally important sites, equally valuable habitats, and they're not in legally designated sites. So the kind of things that could pop up and, you know, not, not pop up, but could, could be present and could be found um, in different parts of the countryside. 
Okay, so just to think a little bit, what's important about these habitats? What makes them what they are? Okay, so this nice calcareous marsh, it has bog cotton. You can see the little cottony heads in the field, in, in the in the marsh. And um, this is not the common bog cotton. This is the broad-leaved cotton grass, Eriophorum latifolium. There's also black bog rush, very common in the west of Ireland, but not at all common in the east of Ireland. Um, so black bog rush, hard to get a good photograph of, but it's you might just make out the little black heads of it there. And also this lovely orchid, which is the narrow-leaved marsh. Marsh orchid, Dactyloriza transgyneroides, not at all a common plant by any means. So this type of habitat is dependent on very particular conditions. It's dependent on a throughput of um, just small amounts of, of groundwater moving through the site. So there's flowing water, but it's, it's just barely, it's just at or just below the ground surface. But there is a continuous supply of clean, calcareous groundwater. So the pH of this site is a little bit above seven. Uh, the water is quite lime rich, and that has an influence on the particular species that you're going to find there. The, the, the particular um, grouping of species that you'll get here is, is also defined by other things. So it's influenced by the soil structure, by the chemistry of the soil, by the historical historical aspects of the site. So, you know, it's taken a long time for this site to become like this. Um, it was a, a habitat type that was much more widespread in the past, but it's been lost at a lot of other sites because they've been drained. So the remaining examples of this type of habitat are hugely significant, hugely important in the landscape at this stage because they provide, um, you know, a refuge for these plants, which are becoming increasingly rare in the landscape. And without the habitat, the plants simply are not going to survive. Grazing is important. You don't want too much grazing you don't want too little grazing. So the level of grazing and the timing of grazing is very important to maintain a site like this in this in this sort of condition. Now, this is just a much smaller example, a small spring feeding into a stream. But again, it's hugely significant. So again, we have high pH water, very calcareous water. And what we're seeing in this in this example is brown mosses. Um, the, these brown mosses are indicative of clean water, which is high in, um, it's high in calcium carbonate, so it's on the high end of the pH scale. Uh, this particular brown moss is called Palustriella commutata, but there's a whole lot of different species that you will find very often growing together, all dependent on continuous um, flow of water, clean water and high pH. Uh, this is the old drain that I pointed out. And again, you can see the brown mosses here. Um, and there's a lot of different things. It, it looks kind of grassy. It's mostly, well, there, is, there are grasses, but there's also sedges and rushes in there. And this um, little sedge, Carex dioica, is an example of one of the things you'll find in here. Now, you're not going to see it in the picture because it's it's so small. But if you get down on your hands and knees and search, um, you might be lucky enough to find it during the summer. It's a, a tiny, tiny little plant. The flower head on it is only about a centimetre tall. So it's very inconspicuous, but it's a really Really, really good indicator species of this high quality type of habitat. Okay, so some other examples just quickly to point out in the same in the same habitat type. Grass of Parnassus, Parnassia palustris, really pretty little white flowers, very they really stand out. Um, this photograph is mainly to show black bog rush, which is so difficult <laughs> to actually get a photograph of, but it's also got um, the fragrant orchid in it, but black bog rush is a, this is a particularly sort of ecologically significant plant in the photograph. This is the common butterwort, Pinguicula vulgaris. Now, if you remember that these habitats are all low in nutrients, so the plants don't have a great deal of nutrients available to them. And uh, some plants overcome that by being insectivorous. So they're able to trap this, this butterwort as sticky leaves. It's able to trap insects. And it's a way of supplementing its nutrient intake. So that's the common butterwort, Pinguicula vulgaris. 
Um, this is just to illustrate the brown mosses again. And you can see where the water is very high in calcium carbonate. Sometimes it'll precipitate out as what we call tufa. So these whitish deposits of calcium carbonate precipitating out of the water. Again, more sedges. Um, it's not all about plants. Of course, there's, there, there are certain species of animal. This tiny, tiny little whirl snail, Vertigo gayeri, is very typical of these flushes, this high pH, continuous flow of clean water. You lose the conditions, you lose the snail. And that's it. These are leaves legally protected and um, this, this particular species is legally protected because it's so rare. And in the middle on the bottom here is a moss called Phalaenotis calcareous. So I'm just going to, um, that's this is going to come up on the next slide again. So Phalaenotis calcarea is an ecologically significant species. It's dependent on these um, this continuous flow of clean water, high pH. Um, it's dotted around lots of different parts of the country, mainly in limestone regions. So mainly around the sort of the Midlands, up around Sligo Leitrim, around the Burren, where this, you know, high pH, um, calcium rich uh, waters. Uh, this picture here is from Glenade. So this is a protected site, but this is a farm that's not a protected site. So, you know, it can be some of these dots are within protected sites and others are not. But it is not a common species by any means. It's very dependent on the particular set of conditions. Um, you know, that, that, that give rise to this, this, this habitat type. Okay, so is it all about the high pH? Well, no, it's not, because if the pH is not so high, we still have um, ecologically significant habitats, but they have different species in them. Now, it doesn't take a huge change in pH. The, the habitats I've shown you are just a little bit above pH 7. These ones are just a little bit below. So I've called them circum, circumneutral and mildly acid springs and flushes. But a similar kind of pattern here, you can see spring heads where the bryophytes dominate the moss. Bryophytes are mosses and liverworts. So I'm talking mainly about mosses, but there's probably some liverworts in there as well. They're, they're similar looking to each other. So we have the mosses and liverworts at the spring head, or here's another little spring head up here, and the water trickles out below in a flush or a stream. In the case on the left here, this is a more diffuse sort of um, uh, springing of water, giving, giving rise to this sort of uh, nice wide wetland area. So like the previous examples, they're, they're dependent on a continuous flow of clean water. Unlike them, the pH is different and they're in different geological settings. So the, um, the, the, the mineral composition of the water is going to be a little bit different as well. And so within these lower pH springs, um, we get slightly different species. Now, remember earlier we had Phalaenotis calcarea, the moss um, that, uh, that, that was uh, distinctive of the higher pH springs. Well, in this case, we have a closely related species, Phalaenotis fontana. The two of them look quite similar. They're slightly different colours and there's things about the leaves that you can tell that they're different species. But they're similar looking, they're in similar settings, but at different levels of pH. Um, in the earlier springs, the high pH springs, we had brown mosses, but when we when the pH is lower, instead of brown mosses, what you're more likely to find is sphagnum moss. So lots of different species of sphagnum, they have different preferences for different types of wetlands. Um, but in some of the, some of the uh, flushes, you will find some of the more acid flushes, you will find certain species of sphagnum. You won't find brown mosses, but you will find sphagnum. And on the right hand side, then we have this tiny little uh, butterwort. This is the pale butterwort. Earlier on, we had the common butterwort, which was Pinguicula vulgaris. In this case, we have Pinguicula lusitanica. So these are the kind of the counterparts. We, we've looked at how you have similar species in the higher pH springs. These are the counterparts when the pH is a little bit lower. And you can see the map here for Phalaenotis fontana. It's much more widespread than Phalaenotis calcarea. And it's much more around the western part of the country where it's much more in the, the um, areas of acid bedrock, unlike Phalaenotis calcarea, which was in the limestone regions. 
Okay, so if we bring all these things together, on the left-hand side, we have the low pH springs. So we have our sphagnum, our pale butterwort and Philonotus fontana. On the right-hand side, we have the higher pH springs. We have the brown mosses, the uh, common um, uh, butterwort, the pinguicula vulgaris, and we have Philonotus calcarea. So the pH on the left-hand side is typically a little bit below seven, and the pH on the right-hand side is typically a little bit above, a, a bit above seven, even sometimes a little bit above eight. So they can go quite high sometimes. So all of these things are dependent on damp conditions with a continuous flushing or throughput of clean, uh, low nutrient water. But the subtle differences in the chemistry, depending on the local geology and depending on the composition of the spring water and the soil, uh, will influence which species you'll get. So they're all dependent on the water, on the, the water being clean and flowing, but the pH will determine whether you're on the left-hand side here of the more acid things or on the right-hand side of the more calcareous things. But the point about this is that these are very recognisable communities. So these plants are not just occurring randomly in a sort of an ad hoc way around the countryside. They form in very specific communities. So where you find, for instance, if you find, um, let's take, for example, if you find Philonotus calcarea, there's a very good chance that you're also going to find Palustriella commutata, not necessarily at every site, but the two things very often will go together. And that really, I think, is at the heart of what's very important about understanding ecologically significant habitats is that we have repeating communities of plants that are very recognisable and they're very well known. It's, it's the parts of the country where they're likely to occur is well known and the types of plants that you're likely to find there are well known. Um, and that's really a basis, I think, for thinking about uh, addressing biodiversity loss. It's to make sure that where these habitats, where we notice that these habitats are becoming rare, those are the ones that we focus our attention on. Okay, now I'm going to just take uh, a, a minute just to explain this uh, this graph. So on the bottom of the graph over here, we have lots of different moss species, some of them we've been talking about. And the most rare of these, and um, the ones that are in very few sites, I've put red arrows on. On the left-hand side here, we have nitrate levels. Now, the blue line represents high water quality. So anything below the blue line is high water quality, according to the EPA. Um, and anything up below the green line is good water quality. So blue is high, uh, green is good. You'll notice that some of the mosses are able to survive. Um, even if you go above the green line, they're still able to survive, like Brachythesium rivulari, which is the first map, and um, Cratinurin philocyanum here, which is the middle map, and Polio wallenbergii. Uh, which is the third map. So these are things that are fairly, um, these are the, these are things that are well able to tolerate. Uh, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not going to be lost as nitrate levels increase. They have a wide tolerance for nitrate. If we look at the bottom row, though, these are things with the red arrows. So Leocolia bantriensis is a liverwort. And then these are the two mosses, very, very local distribution. So you don't find them at very many places. Um, throughout Ireland. They're very specialised in the habitats that they'll survive in. And all of these, all of these things with the red arrows occur in places where the nitrate levels are very, very low. Now, it's not only that they need low nitrate levels, they need other things like the pH and, and you know, other aspects of the habitat. They need that to be right. But I think the really important point is that where these things are surviving, if the nitrate levels were to increase, those things would be lost in those places. So at the at the the top ones are things that we can think of as generalists. Here's our bear again. The bottom ones are the specialists. So these are the things, these ones on the bottom are the things that we need to pay attention to. These are the things that we need to be concerned about in terms of addressing biodiversity loss. 
Okay, so I'll just quickly say a little bit about some changes in the Irish landscape, particularly with reference to the BSBI Atlas um, 2020. Now, on the right hand side is a graph that you might be familiar with. It's often used. It's it's derived from the Habitats Directive Assessments of Habitats. Um, so it's it's based on assessments which are carried out on a regular basis of the SACs and SPAs, the protected areas. And it tells us that 39% of our habitats are bad, 46% are unfavorable, and only a tiny 15% are in good condition. So I'm not I, I'm I'm just putting that in there because it's something <clears throat> I suppose that gives us background and it's something you may have seen before. It's something that we we need to take very seriously. It's it's quite shocking that our protected habitats are in that bad condition. But <clears throat> that's only a part of the story as well, because it does only deal with the protected habitats. The BSBI Atlas, which was launched in March of this year, Atlas 2020, is actually the third atlas produced by the BSBI. The BSBI is the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland. And there are other field clubs as well. So the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland is one of the big botanical field clubs that operates throughout the country of Ireland. But there are other field clubs as well. And they have a long history of botanical recording throughout the country. So the first atlas was produced in 1962, <clears throat> the second atlas in 2002. Um, and like I say, the third atlas came out this year. So these are based not just on the protected sites. These are based on the countryside as a whole. Um, and these are where local botanists are keeping an eye on various different sites and recording the presence or absence of certain things in the countryside. So um, some of the main findings then of the BSBI Atlas 2020, well, not surprisingly, they found a decline in wetland species, a decline in grassland species and a huge increase in non-native species. Now, if you want to, you can um, you can access this. It's all online. The Atlas itself is online. And this is a summary on, on the left hand side here. This is the cover of a summary of the results for Ireland. So you can have a look at that. It'll tell you a little bit more about grasslands. I won't go into that now because we'll just stick to wetlands. But if we look at the trends in the BSBI Atlas for wetland species, there's a marked downward trend in the frequency of typical fen, marsh and swamp plant species. The things, the very things that we've just been looking at. And this is a major issue for biodiversity conservation. The total loss of habitat by its conversion to other uses, such as agriculture or construction, is one that continues up to the present. Um, other problems include changes in the water table, usually lowering of the water table or infilling or poaching by heavy stock, cessation of grazing, encroachment by scrub, whether it's a removal of grazing or nutrient enrichment. So these are the things that are causing the loss of our, uh, of our wetlands. And of course, in lakes, there's been a huge decline due to eutrophication. On the right hand side here, this is common cotton grass, not the one that we looked at earlier. The one we looked at with earlier was the broadleafed cotton grass, which is quite a rare species. The common cotton grass is the very is a very common species of cotton grass that's very widespread in the country. But you can see in the graph here the decline from 1950 to 2020, um, the decline of the um of the common cotton grass uh, as shown by the data in the BSBI Atlas. Now, if we um just take a look, go back to think of some of the species that we've already looked at. I've mentioned grass of Parnassus in calcareous uh, flushes and so on. Um, what I've done on these maps, this is data from the BSBI. You can get these maps online, the BSBI online maps, um, but I've, I haven't actually taken them directly from the atlas because I've just used different colours to highlight the point that I want to make here. 
So the black dots are where we know this plant still to occur. So there are parts of Ireland where there is still plenty of Pernasia palustris, but the red dots are where it was formerly present in sites and it is no longer there, or at least it hasn't been seen since the year 2000, despite somebody going out and actually looking for it. So um, the red dots are, are basically an indication of where the species has been lost. So the more red dots there are, the, the stronger the decline, the trend of decline. We can see Pinguicula lusitanica, the pale butterworth, this tiny little um, insectivorous plant, uh, quite uh, common along the west coast of Ireland. But again, there's quite a lot of red dots where the plant used to be much more widespread and it has since been lost. Carex dioica, this tiny little sedge. Again, a lot of red dots, especially around the Midlands where the plant has been lost. Um, some some black dots, especially in the north and west, but lots of losses of this plant. And this one, where we started off with the broad-leaved cotton grass, Eriophorum latifolium, not very many dots on the map because it is a very rare species, but a lot of those dots are red, so it has been lost. It seems to have been lost from a lot of parts of the country. So all indicative of a decline in wetland habitats and a consequent decline in wetland species. The other point in the atlas, which I won't go into, is just about the increase of non-native species, which is another big problem. Um, but just to, to finish off, just a few, a few um, points uh, um, that I think are probably important to make. So some some thoughts on, you know, what do we do about the conservation of these habitats and species? Some some recommended actions, what to do and what, what not to do. So one option is to do nothing. Um, this is actually a really, really useful option when it comes to, to properly implementing nature conservation. Very often we just, if, if the thing is fine, then let's just keep on doing what we've been doing. Keep an eye on a few of the key species and if they're doing well, nothing needs to be done. So it's a very cost-effective action, doesn't require any changes, it doesn't require any extra effort. Um, just continue to do what you've already been doing, don't do anything different. Sometimes we might need to consider actions to retain. So these will be precautionary actions where we can identify a habitat that's of ecological significance. We just want to make sure that that habitat is, is uh, continues to survive. Um, and again, the whole uh, the whole um, you know the pressure that's coming down the road for tree planting that is going to be something I think that is going to put a lot of good important habitats under pressure. If we don't know they're there, we're more likely to lose them. So identifying the fact that the habitat is of ecological significance is absolutely crucial. The third one, actions to rescue. If damage begins to happen, it may be possible to spot the damage, to see where the problem lies and to intervene um, so that it doesn't it doesn't become uh, it doesn't become too bad. And, you know, hopefully to undo the, the damage. And number four, then, if things go a little bit further down the road and there has been more severe damage, the best way to approach that, if it's possible, is to undo the undo the damage. And the thing, you know, a wetland site where the water supply is being diverted away from it, can the water supply be redirected back to its original? course. There may be still things there that are dormant in the soil. They may be able to become re-established. Um, so it may be possible to actually rehabilitate. It probably won't be as good as it was before, and that's why it's better not to get to that stage. Um, but th those are the kind of things to think about. And I suppose this is, you know, something that uh, we don't want to see happen. So on the left hand side, we've got examples of all the kinds of things that I've been talking about. The tufa, in this case, with some peat on top, which is an especially interesting kind of situation, both tufa forming and peat forming. Here's our brown mosses and sedges. Here's a little flush. Here's pinguicula. So 
this was before and this unfortunately was was what happened because the landowner just wasn't aware that the site was relevant or you know was was of scientific importance was of ecological significance and sadly that's what happened now the good the good thing about that is the water supply is still there so it's possible that a lot of these things will come back but of course it would be better just not to damage them in the first place so um just then to finish up so just to, to, to summarize um Natural habitats are of immeasurably greater value than anything we can create. They are the authentic and complex expressions of nature in each particular place. It's an urgent priority that we recognize habitats of high ecological value and put in place what is necessary to ensure that they remain in good condition. Many sites of ecological importance are not in protected areas. Some are very small, but they're still important. And damaged areas which formerly supported important habitats may recover through sensitive management. So that's important to bear in mind. Um, we may be able to reverse damage by undoing inappropriate actions rather than attempting to reintroduce species. And I would recommend seeking advice. So if you think there's a habitat that you come across and you think that actually might be something that's important, contact um, Heritage or Biodiversity Officers, MBWS Rangers, and the BSBI Atlas that I've mentioned was th those records were put together by BSBI Vice County Recorders. They are the people who know the local areas very well. There's a BS there are BSBI County uh, County Vice County Recorders all over the country. They do operate in a voluntary capacity, so bear that in mind, but you may be able to get in touch with them through heritage and biodiversity officers, and they may be able to give you um, more help on, on recognising and, you know, being able to figure out what, what is ecologically significant and, and what it might need, what to do about it. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. I might just stop sharing there. Uh, absolutely fascinating. The I think the the example, even though I know you uh, uh, said it was exotic of the 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 two bears, I think gives people a, a really an idea of, of what you you were trying to say. Uh, remind you that uh, to use the the Q and A uh, for 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 questions. Um, there's one question here that I'll just pick up on, and and I think it kind of summarizes the dilemma to some degree. Would you agree that many many farmers and and advisors have no awareness of these threatened uh, species and habitats uh, within non-protected areas? And that's yeah, I, yeah, it's a huge problem, and I think it's something that I suppose because uh, you know I would come very much from a background of people who are recording things in a voluntary capacity, and it's something that the field clubs are very aware of, but it's very difficult to bridge that gap between the field clubs and the landowners. I suppose what we would love to see is, um, you know, to have inventories of sites. The old and first verba has sites of scientific interest. That was that was a good start, I think, of highlighting sites that were important. But I mean, that was parked a long time ago. And I think, you know, if we could expand something like that and have an in inventory of sites, um, you know, uh, to so that the local authorities would be aware of it. Now, there is a lot of data held by local authorities and by National Parks and Wildlife Service. So there is a lot of information there. But there isn't a lot of joined up thinking between the, you know, the, the vice county recorders, the records that are there and the people who are actually managing the land. So there's this huge, there's a huge need, I think, to, to bring those together. Yeah, and and I suppose over the last or, or since the introduction of of acres, a lot of the areas you would be talking about uh, will have had uh, farmers going out and and preparing scorecards, uh, etc., on those habitats, uh, and also in 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 uh, some of the the non CP areas. But I think, and Catherine, you might comment on this as well. I, I think potentially the need to start recognizing some of these areas and and have higher levels of protection on them 
maybe this is a starting point and maybe those inspections are not inspections but those uh, uh that process of, of preparing those scorecards might give us a, a if you want a way to start identifying some of those habitats yeah I, pat i suppose it's it, it's amazing what has happened this year that we have agricultural advisors for the first time in our history out recording looking at plants for a start. Now, I agree. I mean, I know a lot of plants. I wouldn't know a fraction of what Melinda knows, but I'm not even sure that we need to know them all to get her really important message. So, and we've started on that this year for the first time in our history that we have advisors out looking at the land at other than ryegrass, you know, and there is a place for ryegrass, but there's a place for these as well. Yeah. Well, and I, question. Sorry, sorry, Melinda. Well, I, I, I suppose, I, you know, I, I'm not that familiar with the, with how the scorecards actually Im- are implemented on the ground. But I think, you know, that there is a there is. A, yeah, there's a need both for being a little bit more detailed in being able to identify the habitats. But also, like Catherine says, you don't need to know every plant. You just need to be able to pick out a few key indicator species. And that will really help to, to you know, to point out the important places. Catherine, a lot of questions starting to come yeah, in Yeah, and I see one, but it, it reflects my own. Uh, wanted to get your thoughts, Melinda, on you had a lovely picture there. I think it was a donkey in a beautiful species-rich grassland. And you were talking about the importance of doing nothing. And I'm 100% with you on that. As long as it's not confused with rewilding and shutting the gate. Can I get your thoughts on, in particular relating to that picture, um, it, it, that the do nothing doesn't mean removing the grazing? or no. I suppose the the impart where is grazing critical to keep the species at the sustainable level? Just get your thoughts on that, please. Yeah, do nothing is probably do nothing different. <laughs> if everything yes. is fine, <laughs> yes. don't do anything different. I suppose is really is really the point. Grazing is hugely important, and and low levels of grazing are, are you know I suppose a lot of the habitats that we've lost are associated with traditional forms of agriculture and the sort of the more extensive uh, type of agriculture. And to to you know a lot of our grasslands are dependent on that. So to remove grazing is is absolutely the wrong thing to do. I mean, we we have problems at both ends of the scale, both of over intensive grazing and at, uh, you know, the removal of grazing or the abandonment of land. And some lovely habitats have been lost through and to the to the extent where now, um, I mean, on Hoth Head, goats have been reintroduced to, to for grazing. So grazing is a hugely important aspect of nature conservation management. So yeah, do nothing. If everything is fine, do nothing means do nothing different as opposed to yeah. do nothing at all. Just yeah. a comment on the word rewilding, please, Melinda. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very complicated subject. Um, you know, I, we we don't we, we I think we have to have insight into what we're doing. We have to understand what's important about any particular site. Every site is different and we need to look at the site to see what's important. Where are the ecologically significant habitats? And the idea of walking away and shutting the gate is is a disaster very often when we see the, the problems of invasive species and you know a lack of management so so i'm i'm certainly not advocating that at all it's, it's a very yeah. very that would be a whole different talk though to really get into that yes and we had that was the comment from one one person there that the black thorn and ferns are taking over their farm and they're worried about doing anything with it so i think our advice there was go grow graze um and it, it, you just mentioned their invasive alien species and that has come up again now and specifically uh relating to the asian hornet onslaught so i'm i'm, I'm not sure if you're an expert on that but mm-hmm. it's more general um general comment about the the danger of invasive alien species how damaging are they to habitats to biodiversity and what can we do any 
Yeah, a huge problem. Um, the slide that I skimmed over from the BSBI Atlas, it shows that now um, approximately half of our plants in Ireland in the wild are now not native plants. So we now have as many non-native plants in the wild in Ireland as we have of the original native plants. And I think that's quite a shocking statistic. I was really shocked to see that. You know, our native plants are so important, but these non-native species are going to outcompete them. So we, we know of several hugely problematic invasive species, whether it's gunner or, you know, Himalayan balls or whatever um, but there, but we, we don't know we're bringing in so many plants both accidentally and deliberately we, we just don't know which ones are going to become invasive so there is potential in all of that and that's why I would really really um, advise against using these seed mixtures that are supposedly for biodiversity that's not what we need is the real habitats we need to mine the habitats that we have value the habitats we have or let them let habitats recover of their you know according to their own their own way of recovering to the plants that will naturally come back into those habitats and not be trying to introduce species or plant plant things into them and melinda a question i suppose it comes to the core of thing how can planning authorities protect these habitats when often applications are made under you know for for a, for a different let's say good reason around land reclamation and improvement or i'm thinking forestry maybe there and i suppose the ultimate thing is who decides what goes where it's it's that's land use issues how, how do we decide it's it's a really really big problem. It's there there are no easy answers, and I think it's something that's going to get this huge problem, huge pressure for land use change at the moment. I think it's going to get, um, I think it's you know I think it's going to get more and more complicated. I know James Moore in in um in uh, Atlantic Technological University, there's a big research group over there looking at those issues, um. I mean, from my point of view, all I can really say is that the first priority for biodiversity is to recognise the things that are of value. And there's a lot of land which has been farmed quite intensively for long periods of time. And whatever happens to, I mean, barring the problem of nitrates or phosphates getting washed off that land and affecting other areas or, you know, barring, barring some use of that land that affects a wider area, that particular land is, is, is not of any real consequence for nature conservation. So the, the use of that particular land, if that particular land is planted with trees, that's from the point of view of nature conservation, that's a kind of it's 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 irrelevant to to nature conservation. But the thing is to try to keep development onto the onto that type of land um, and to, to avoid putting it onto land where there are those the, the naturally occurring habitats, because there's so few left. There's little ones dotted all over the place, but they're very small in area. So the total, the sum total of the amount of that land is not very big. So I think it's it's awareness of the quality of different habitats and the value of different pieces of land. And you can't just sort of trade off. You can't say, oh, well, we're going to lose this piece of land, but we'll set aside that piece of land instead. It doesn't work like that. So it's to recognise the particular piece of land in a particular place and to try to avoid damage to that. One more on the best management of vegetation around turlocks. Uh, well, not a, not a habitat, I suppose, that I have a great deal of direct oh. um, um, experience on. But again, I mean, grazing is very important. So, yeah, low levels of grazing, I think, are probably very important in that agree, context. Yeah. Go ahead, Pat. Melinda, I suppose there's a, there's a huge emphasis at the moment on the restoration of both the, the cutaway bogs or the the, the harvested uh, bogs, and and also uh, increasingly a lot of discussion from a carbon uh, excuse me <clears throat> a carbon perspective uh, to try and and I won't use the word rewet, but to to raise the water table on uh, I suppose managed grasslands uh, with with high organic matter in them, but it's referred to, I think, more from a carbon perspective, 
But from a, a biodiversity perspective, is there something we need to be doing to try and make sure to get dual benefit uh, from the efforts that are going on there? Again, there's no simple, straightforward answer. I, I had students out yesterday. We were down in County Offaly and we were looking at exactly that issue and exactly those points were coming up for debate. So you really have the trade off of how do you manage, you know, to what extent do you flood the land? What do you do if the land is too wet because you're actually reduce, reduce, releasing more methane? So it's a, it's a huge balancing act. But I think one of the things is to be very clear about why you're doing a particular thing, what the reason is. I think often biodiversity is lumped in with climate change. So we say, oh, that's for climate change biodiversity when actually it's really about climate change it's not actually about climate it's not actually about biodiversity so the two things are not always um they, they don't always uh, uh one thing doesn't uh, the two things are not always the same, um, and but it's very easy to cover up the biodiversity problem by just talking about climate change and assuming that you're addressing both at the same time. You're usually not. Um, so it takes. That's why. That's why I think biodiversity loss is something that we have to think much more critically about. We have to think much in much more detail about it. It's not this sort of easily covered generic thing that's all the same as climate change. So I think as long as we're very specific and we say we're doing this for this particular reason, we're doing that for that particular reason, that at least disentangles what the, what the facts are. And then you have to prioritise and say, but if this is an especially high um, value biodiversity area, then we have to prioritise that. Whereas other areas, lots of other areas might not be particularly important for biodiversity and therefore we might prioritise uh, climate change or carbon sequestration. Um, and again, for agriculture, you know, I, I think that that a lot of land that's already intensively used, it, the, 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 real, the, re, the reality is that it is not a great value for, for, it's not going to be a great value for biodiversity. So setting it aside for biodiversity is not relevant. Um, okay, if we want to walk away and leave it for hundreds of years, we've could end up with lovely, lovely forests, but you know it's 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 on a whole different time scale, and I don't think that's really the priority right now. Um, so I think it's assessing the value of the land as it is for particular things, and making sure that that value is realistically factored into the decisions that are made. There's a, a, a few questions in, and you alluded to potential uh, problems with with the forestation. Uh, and a couple of questions around how do we make sure that afforestation and future afforestation with a, a push for it now doesn't start uh, uh, interfere with some of those habitats? Yeah, it's they're really difficult questions. It's a site by site assessment, really. It's looking at what's on the ground in each particular place. Um, if the land has been used intensively for agriculture, then it's 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 like I say, the, the, the potential for biodiversity is quite low. So I wouldn't have great concerns. But if it's marginal land, which, of course, has always been the land that has been prioritised for, for planting trees on. Um, the, the, the reality is, I think a lot of people see tree planting as being positive for biodiversity. And I think it's a really important message to get out that that is actually not the case. We don't want to lose the trees that we have. We don't want to lose woodlands or hedgerows or scrub that we have that, that is of high value for biodiversity. But equally, trying to plant, you know, the idea of planting trees just to create biodiversity is if that's that's, you know, really goes runs contrary to the points that I've been trying to make this morning. Um, so it's, um, uh, yeah, it's... So, so it's, what, you're saying, what you're saying is be really careful about where you, you, yeah. you plant and, and have yeah. appropriate assessment. Yes. And also, and I, I know this is just raising it, it's another another 
complicated issue. But a lot of tree planting has really succeeded in bringing in pests and diseases. And, you know, a lot of our native trees are now under huge pressure because of the amount of movement of trees around the place. So um, it isn't an extra thing to factor into the whole argument that that by introducing species, whether they're trees or whatever they happen to be, there is a risk of introducing pests and diseases. So it's it, 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 you may want to do it for other reasons. There may be very good other reasons why you want to do it, but biodiversity isn't isn't um, going to be benefited by it. Is, is the is the simple answer? Okay, Catherine. Still loads of questions coming yeah, in. Yeah, on the assessment, there are so are a lot of the rarer species. If Philanthus, I think the digital example here, are they seasonal or are they easy to spot all year round? Well, um. Yeah, a lot of them are seasonal. So some of them, you know, some of the things when they're in flower, you'll spot them quite easily, but that's usually going to be during the summer. I mean, you're talking really from sort of May to August, I suppose, for a lot of the flowering plants. And when they're when they're in flower, they can be very conspicuous. They can be very easy to see and you can go back in winter and there's not a trace of them. So there's definitely a seasonal aspect to which things are. If you already know them, you'll probably be able to find them in winter as well because you'll be looking for something different. But definitely doing things at the right time of year is hugely important. Um, the benefit of um, getting to know some mosses is that they're very easy to do in the winter. So when the flowering plants are not so conspicuous, often the mosses or the liverworts are much more conspicuous. So this time of the year now, it's it's actually, they're starting to really um, become much more um, obvious as the other plants die back. And they're really good indicators of habitat because they're very small. So they're very dependent on the particular setting where they are. So, you know, I think that's, I I know they're a little bit trickier to, to become familiar with, but once you know them, they give you really good clues about the condition of the habitat, about the, the sort of the ecological factors at work in that particular place. We've talked a lot about trees, but can digging small ponds in wetland areas cause damage to biodiversity or are they always a good idea? Oh, it's tricky. I, again, it really depends. Know what's there first. And if it's something that's very very that is you know if you have very rare species or if it's a very good quality habitat it's probably best just leave it alone if you have something that's um if you have a habitat that doesn't you might have a wet wet field say that doesn't have any particular rare species and you might say well creating a little bit more diversity of sort of in terms of the sort of the physical conditions might increase it might might improve it in some way so i would be a little bit careful i wouldn't rule it out but i would be careful before going doing any sort of intervention like that because you might do do more harm than good. So make sure that this make sure you know what's there before you before you tackle something like that, I would say. And there was a question about the riparian buffer zones where we're fencing off areas for either acres or, or part of the asset program. Now that can be good because it could be um and I suppose is the, the concern the person was raising maybe was the fact that they would become too scrubbed over. So yeah. yeah. It's a, it's another it's another balancing act, and it's something that I I find it very difficult to, to myself because I can see the problem on both sides. Um, I suppose really, and I, I mean I I have a certain amount of sort of farming farming background in my own kind of upbringing, um, but my my view is probably that a lot of the a lot of the problem here is that a lot of the stock that are used nowadays are so much heavier and they're probably more, There's pro- the stocking density is probably greater. Um, whereas in the past, you would have probably had some lighter animals, maybe not doing so much damage to the bank so they could get in and graze. 
Um, I think that uh, if you completely fence something off, yes, you are going to damage the habitat to some extent. But clearly, if you have a lot of heavy stock right up at the edge of the river, that is a whole different set of problems. So I'm, I'm, the, the, you know, when when I saw the, the, the to see, I, I was a bit skeptical about the goat grazing. It, uh, you know, when that was introduced, I thought, how, you know, how is that going to work? And to see how precise they are at grazing certain things, it's absolutely incredible. So I know that's a very, that's very a real sort of micromanagement in a sense, but within within very high um within areas that are very of very high ecological significance it might be down to a little bit of that sort of level of micromanagement where things can be grazed in a certain way so it's not a complete cessation of grazing it's that there's grazing but it's not with you know it's it's controlled in some way um whether it's the timing or the amount of animals or whatever it is but yes yeah, certainly fencing off i i i find i i'm very uncomfortable at seeing the the river banks being fenced off because i think they do need grazing but but clearly okay. you know it's there's my last my last one, Pat, uh, for Melinda, if there was one thing you could advise farmers or even advisors um, that could have be the biggest impact, what would that be? Oh, maybe maybe it's about learning the learning to recognize the plants that are important. Maybe it's about the, you know, the being able to spot the habitats Um because if you if you don't know they're there, you're just not going to be able to to protect them. So I think it's yeah, I think it's becoming aware of the significance of particular species and particular habitat types. There's a lot of field clubs around the country, and that's the best place to learn your plants. Um, that's something that I've got great value out of. They're very inexpensive to join, and you know you have access to experts who will teach you all these things. So if anybody's interested in learning more plants, I would try to find out if there's a field club in that area or look up the BSBI. Okay, I think we've we've come to our, our time. Listen, that that hour has flown, Melinda. It's it's fascinating. I think uh, the 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 kind of picture you paint of of where species uh, survive and the challenges they have and 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 the habitat they can live in. I think that will will, will remain with, with me and I'd say probably a lot of other people as as a way of thinking about the, the, the problems that we face. So thank you very much for an absolutely fantastic uh, presentation and, and, for, and for your insights onto the questions that were there. There were, there, there were loads more there. So thank you uh, very much. Uh, I just want to, to uh, say that next week, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that that uh, we have in Wexford, in Whites and Wexford, the the, the uh, catchment uh, uh, conference, uh, catchment management 20, 2023, and uh, one of the speakers at that will be joining us next Friday morning, uh, Professor pa Patrick Drohan from Penn State University, and he'll be talking about catchment and manage management initiatives uh, in in the US. So uh, that should be a, a very interesting uh, uh, insight into some of the work uh, that's that's going on in, in in other areas. We, I suppose, don't get outside our our own boundaries often enough to see what's what's happening in other places. And just one final thing, just uh, to let you know that that on the 16th of of November, uh, Chagask and and our colleagues in in Northern Ireland, Athby and Caffrey, are running. A, an upland symposium which will take place in Westport in the Briefy House uh, and there will be a limited number of spaces available at that so uh, information on that will be available on the Chagas web, uh, website in the next couple of days so if you're interested in that area uh, uh, please look it up and and uh, we'd be delighted to see you on the 16th in, in Westport so again until we see you again next week stay safe and and goodbye You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. 
Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review, and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson, and thanks for listening.